Before I read our scripture for this morning, just a little bit about where we're going. Um, we're going to start our winter-spring series uh, the first Sunday in February. And so, just to try to give that its due, we, we like to do some topical things in these little Jan-term uh, portions before we begin a full series. And so, this week, next week, and the week after that, we'll be doing uh, some you know, topical things. Like this morning, we're going to talk about work. Um, next week, we're going to talk about generosity. And so just a little bit about where we're going before we get to February, which will begin our new series, um, looking at the Lord's Prayer and how he teaches us to pray. So this morning, we're going to talk about work, a bigger and better story. So with that, let's turn our attention uh, to the reading of God's Word found in these selected texts in Genesis and then in Colossians. So beginning in chapter 2, verse 1 of Genesis, here's the word of the Lord. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Verse 8, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the Lord God took the man, and he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And then chapter 3, verse 17 And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, uh, that's implying over the Lord's voice, not just in general listening, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were made, taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And then in our New Testament reading in Colossians chapter 3, 22 to 24. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will, you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Let me pray for us and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We pray that you would do a miracle. And by miracle, we pray that you would soften our hearts, that you would open our eyes and our ears, that we may see and hear things otherwise we could not. That you would change us by your spirit through your word. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. In his autobiography, Let's Go So We Can Get Back, Wilco frontman, Grammy winner, music producer, Jeff Tweedy, talks about his life in the music business as a 51-year-old who has had a lot of success, but who has tried to not lose who he is along the way in his love for music. And towards the end of the book, he begins to recount uh, several just experiences that he has 
encountered in his career that really changed the way that he saw what he did as a musician, either for the rest of his life or even in that moment. And in one account, he talks about opening a show for Johnny Cash. Yes, Johnny Cash. This was at a music festival, and they had, uh, they had him and Johnny had met years before, and Tweety never really got over the fact that Johnny even knew his name, as he recounts. But in this particular moment, Wilco is backstage, getting ready to go on, when the door flings open, and there stands the man in black, Johnny Cash, asking, where's Jeff? And he goes, and he, he, he this is Jeff writing this now, he goes and he comes up and he starts talking to me about how he's not feeling well and how he needs for us, Wilco, to open the show. I mean, sorry, to, to, to follow him. He, Johnny's asking if he can go first now and have them follow him. And, I mean, what's, what are you going to say in that moment when Johnny Cash is asking you something? Sure, okay. Johnny, uh, Johnny Cash leaves. Here's what Jeff wrote about that. He said, what had just happened didn't fully hit us until several moments after his presence had evaporated from the room. What? We have to follow Johnny Cash? This is ridiculous. Can't we just leave with everyone else when he's done? <laughs> and this is the part, this is what he says, the part that really caught me. He says, in a lot of ways, though, and he's just recounting after the show, in a lot of ways it was freeing. He says, you don't get on a stage after Johnny Cash has left it and feel like you owe anyone a return on their entertainment dollar. The stakes haven't been raised. They have been obliterated. Tweety went on to talk about how much fun they had that night, even though they didn't play that well as a band. But it was one of the first times that he had ever really felt freedom like that, to just play and not perform. And that had everything to do with how following a legend like Johnny Cash changed, or the way I would put it, reframed the way that Jeff Tweedy saw his work in that moment and for that day. Now, we're going to be talking about a biblical view of work this morning, and I want uh, to be, really begin um, with the end in mind as way of introduction, and that is what the gospel does for us is it changes how we see and how we do our work. It changes in how we see and how we do everything, but specifically our work. It reframes our work for us. And in so doing, it frees us. It really does. It frees us to enjoy our work because all of our work, anything that you do, follows an act that doesn't just raise the stakes for us. It obliterates those stakes. And this is the work of Christ that we are talking about. This is his death and his resurrection And Jesus gives us that new story, as it were, so that we might view ourselves and our work today differently. We often, and at least this was my experience growing up, we often think that what happens here on Sunday morning is completely different than what happens tomorrow on Monday morning. But it's not. It's not. We just need need a new way to see it. Real quick before we move forward, when I say work, I'm not just talking about your career or, or whatever it is that, that you know, your day job or maybe even more specifically what, what you do for money. Um, when, I, when I say work this morning, I'm talking about anything, as Lester DeCosta writes, uh, that is a form in which we make ourselves useful to others. Okay, So look, that, that can be planting a garden. I can be delivering pizzas, I can be changing diapers, or preaching a sermon. But that is a more biblical definition and view of work. Anything 
that makes ourselves useful to others. Not just something I get paid for, but all of work. So how do we begin to see our work differently? Well, we need a new view of it. We need a biblical view of it. And so we're going to look at how the Bible gives us that view as we see the value of work, as we see the problem with work, and as we see ultimately the power in our work to change the way that we see and do what we do. Okay, so, no, this is going to create way more questions than it answers. Okay, let me just put that out front. So, if, you know, if it's helpful, I would love to talk about this. I don't know how much time we have after the service, but certainly if you want to send emails or texts or meet for coffee or lunch, let's do that. But we've got to start somewhere, and this is the best place to start. So, the value of work. Work has value because it is image-bearing. Let me say that again. Work has value because it is image-bearing. Uh, there are three mandates that we just read about in Genesis. Uh, they are, and, and these mandates are features, as Dr. Jack Collins writes, that God planted into human nature at the very beginning. And he calls us, these three mandates, he calls us to be fruitful and to multiply. He calls us to work, which is to be, uh, you know, to be stewards, to subdue and rule over the, the earth and the, and the planet. And he also calls us to worship. Or you could summarize these as the three W's, work, worship, and wedlock, as Collins does. The big three. But these mandates have value because they are image-bearing. All three of them are. When we do them, we, re- we actually reflect something about who God is. And that's why work is so important. And why it has value is because it reflects something about our Creator. And so the first thing that we notice that is, we may not jump off the page to you in Genesis because perhaps you've maybe read it many times, is that God works. This is what this means to be image-bearing. God works, and we see this in Genesis 2-2, we see that God works in creation to do what? To create. On the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all of his work. Right? And we all know that if something is repeated in Scripture once or twice, it's important, we should perk up a little bit, but if it's repeated three times, whoa, that's something. Well, that's what's happening here. And so from the very beginning, what the Bible is trying to show you is that the God who creates you works and it's a good thing. But as we see later, not only does God work, we work. By the time we get to verse five, there's a problem because There is no man to work the ground, as the text says. And then by verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and to keep it. These aren't park rangers, just sort of making sure everything's okay. These are people working the ground and doing things to make it more beautiful and and to help it to flourish. Of all the things that God could have done or have his creation doing, he chooses to have them to work. Don't miss that. And he does this because our work will reflect his character and goodness or who he is. This is image bearing. All right. Uh, What's fascinating about this, though, uh, especially this text in Genesis, is what the world in which it was written thought about work. Nowhere in any creation account do we read of the God who is doing the creating being the one who works. And some of my research came across, if you may be familiar with the Enuma Elish, the Babylonian creation account, probably the most famous ancient Near Eastern account, creation account that we have. 
But if you, if you just read that, or you listen to it, you listen to different snippets on, on YouTube, it has the gods being angry that they have to work. Okay? has them being angry that they have to, that they have to work. Um, and one of those reasons is because, you know, the moon god has to kind of, I don't know, whatever he was doing before that, has to kind of show up and get the moon to go across the sky. And then, you know, or the sun god has to, you know, there's got to be that day thing. And then, then you know, and so they're angry that they've got to be interrupted doing whatever it was they were doing to go make sure these things happen. And so in these creation accounts, what, what do they do to, to, get, to get around the work? Well, they create humans. Well, we'll, we'll get them to go do this stuff. And what the gods are really saying is that work is beneath us. We don't do those types of things. And this doesn't really change. This worldview doesn't really change. Even in, in the Greco-Roman worldview, uh, there we read in those accounts that work is really a curse. Right? And so if you had to do that, there was something that, you know, there was a lower form of life if you had to go do those things. And so what's unique about the Genesis account that, that I wanted to, to pause for a little bit and, and note is that work isn't seen as a problem here. Something someone else should do. Work is seen as good, something God loves to do. And thus something we were created for as image bearers. Collins again writes this, Mankind's original purpose was to begin from Eden, work their way outward, spreading the blessings of Eden to all the earth. This would mean managing all its creatures creatures and resources for the good purposes, to allow beauty to flourish, he says, to use them wisely and kindly, and to promote the well-being for all. This is how work is image-bearing. It produces something that reflects something about who God is. And because our work is image-bearing, it would, it has value. It has value. And not just some work. Not just the work you get paid to do. All work. Now, we can devalue work, and we devalue work when it what ultimately devalues humans or those involved or animals or anything like that as image bearers, not animals, but people. You, know, you can't be a businessman and a drug cartel to the glory of God. It's not part of the equation. And I'm, you know... We can talk about what bad work is in another time, but it does exist. But the question before we leave this first point is, do we share this same worldview that just work in general, that it has value, that it's good, and it's good because our God works and he has created us to reflect that God by working as well? This is our starting place. Okay, well, why, why might we not think of work as having value? And this gets to the problem, point two. For many of us, work isn't freeing. It's not fun. It's frustrating. And we hate it. I mean, this is more of what we understand when we come in here on Sunday morning. Well, what happened? Well, Genesis 3 happened. Sin entered the world and it messed everything up. And for the sake of time and focus, part of that everything is your work. You can root all your problems with your boss, with the weeds in your flower bed, or even your car breaking down as soon as you pull it off the parking lot from the mechanic's office. Right there in Genesis 3. This is where the wheels begin to fall off, no pun intended. We see that work is cursed. We see that There's pain in our work from Genesis 3, as we read. There are thorns and there are thistles. There's going to be sweat. Uh, 
that is going to be required in the work that we do. And what does all this mean when we read this part of, of Genesis? Well, this is, this is very poetic. It's poetic. You know, the ground is cursed. Thorns and thistles will grow where you don't want them to. And instead of work being joyful and freeing, it's going to be hard. A lot of what you do is going to seem pointless now. It's not going to bring, bring about uh, the, the blessing that it was intended to bring before the fall. And look, one of the things that this text is not saying, just, just, to, just to, to be clear, this is universal, right? This isn't just agrarian. And the text is not saying, well, as long as you don't work in the fields, become a farmer, and attempt to rake your leaves this fall, well, you'll be fine. Just go into the world of computer science, the fall will not reach you there. That's not what this is saying. As long as, you know, whatever work that you do, it is, it is, it is metaphorical at this point, as poetry tends to be, it is everything you do. All your work, all your endeavors, everything. Thorns and thistles is another way of saying, instead of the ground returning blessing through your work, it will return pain and frustration through your work, which is why much of work, even the work that we love, sometimes seems pointless and is frustrating. Contracts will fall through no matter how hard you work. In other words, hard work solves a lot of problems, but it is not a king maker. It's not a silver bullet to make sure all is well. Famines will destroy this year's harvest and housing markets will plummet. There are things out of your control now that will affect your work. You can't do anything about those things. What should have been a good sales year flop for seemingly no reason. And yes, there is no end to the laundry. It's just the world you live in. In other words, thorns and thistles is another way to say our work doesn't return to us what we put into it. And that's a, that's a, tragi- tra- that's a, that's a travesty. It's not the way it's supposed to be. But it also means that your work is not going to fulfill you in the ways that you think that it's going or should fulfill you. And that's really a big one for today. You know, for, for Westerners like ourselves, we are, a, are unique in human history by virtue of even getting to consider what work we would like to do for a living or leisure. And so many of us, because of this, get sucked in by the lure of the perfect job. A job that will, one, change, um, change the world. A job that will fulfill me in every way that I imagine possible, while at the same time making me independently wealthy by 28. I mean, we, we think this is out there. We're sure of it. I just have to find it. And so, in the process, we rule out great work. The minute becomes what? Boring? Frustrating at times? We assume this is not our calling? God doesn't want me to do this? Or when it's not fulfilling in all the ways that we wanted it to? Now look, I don't want to be too pessimistic here. The, the lure of the perfect job isn't a bad thing in and of itself. It's actually what you were created for. This is why it's important to begin in Genesis. Chesterton talked about it like this. It, it, it's more like a memory, not a false hope. He says this. He says, <clears throat> those longings that we have uh, in some strange man- manner are a memory and that we are all kings in exile. You were created for greatness. Don't forget that. But here's the problem. You either now pursue work in a way to make you great, or 
you find yourself a part of a story that says you're great already. Many of us, though, pursue work in a way to make us great, to make that story a reality. In a survey of over 1,000 kids from ages 6 to 17, 75% of them said when they were asked, what do you want to do for a living? What do you want to be? They want to be doctors, lawyers, teachers. They want to be YouTubers and bloggers. Why? Because they want to be famous. And why do they want to be famous? Because they want to be great. That's the story of greatness in our world today. Fame. That's a biblical thing. You want to be great. And so what? You work the rest of your life or you look to work to make that story a reality. Those are your options. Or you find yourself already a part of a story that says you are great. And that's the gospel. That's what Jesus has come to do. He's come to restore that bad, worn-out story of thorns and thistles. Thorns and thistles also means that we also means that we will now work with what wrong motives too. This is part of the part of the problem. Still, it will become just a means to an end, our job or whatever work we're doing, or it will become a way for us to get mine in order to get ahead at the expense of others. And as we will see later, one of the sure ways for you to hate your job or to hate your work is to see it as a means to an end. Wrong motives then can lead to putting our identity in work. This is a whole other sermon. We'll put our identity in there. We'll ask, ask it to do way more for us than it ever was intended to. And then when this happens, we'll be threatened by those who are better than us at our calling. We'll find ourselves saying to ourselves or to others, you know, they are such a better parent, such a better preacher, you know, such a better doctor, such a better surgeon, athlete, whatever it is. I will never be that good and it will eat you up inside. And this is just another way of how stories the stories we see ourselves a part of matter. But all of this is what Genesis 3 means when it says that work is cursed. And just to note that really quickly, many of us read that and we think that work is the curse. It's not. Your work is cursed. I have four girls who have to clean their room when we get home, and they think that is punishment. It's the curse. It's actually dignifying to them for them to clean their room. They don't realize that yet. We have to tell them they're not, this isn't punishment. But it isn't the curse. Their work, though, is cursed, which means work is still good. It's not just going to be, but it's not going to be what it should have been. And thankfully, though, as we continue in and through this the biblical worldview of work, we're not left here with these problems. Uh, we may still experience these problems, but we're not left here as this is it. And this gets to the third point, the power of work. And this is a more challenging one for us because it requires our imagination. See, we get the problem of work. But the challenge for us is to know that this isn't, this isn't where we are in the story of God's redemption, redeeming of all things. So we need our imagination to help us see where we are going. As we leave Genesis 3, we enter into God's plan for redemption to fix the mess we have made. And in this plan, God declares a new purpose. That he will come and personally redeem his people, making them into a new creation. And use them to bring about a new creation as well. All this begins in Genesis, but it's all throughout the Old Testament. But we see it most clearly when what? When Jesus shows up. And all things are beginning to make new. The, the blind are seeing, right? the deaf are hearing, the lame are walking. That's new creation. 
you becoming a Christian is that too, a new creation. And he has come to redeem all these things, and he's promised the redemption of all these things through his resurrection. But guess what else is being redeemed? Your work. And it's not just for work's sake. He's actually saying, I want to use that to redeem all things. What? This is a game changer for Monday morning. As one pastor puts it, Jesus brings his kingdom and he makes us a new creation and he redeems our work so that we will be a blessing to the nations. That is Genesis 12 language, friends. What Abraham set out to do, Jesus finished, and now we are carrying on the process until what? He returns. Through what? Your work. Because it's good. Because God loves it. And this is how he wants to do what he does. Jesus creates a new story for us then to see and to do our work. And this requires imagination. This is why salvation in Scripture, friends, is so much more than your personal salvation. It is the making of all things new. Redeeming all things, all of life, especially your work. It's covenantal, you might say. And this is the context then for our work today. The gospel is the new story in which we view our work. It is the Jesus story. Where our work is being redeemed along with us. And it is a critical tool in God's redeeming plan to what? Make all things new. And if this is true... And it is. Then your work has power. Not just the presidency of the United States. The custodian at your school. You folding laundry till you're, you want to pass out. Because what we begin to see is that our work is about redeeming places. And redeeming those spaces where that work is done. And that's really what I want to spend the rest of our time on. Monday morning is not just, i got to go back to the grind. It's about going to a place where you are actually equipped with the Holy Spirit to push back against the effects of the fall. So what does this look like? What does that mean for us on Monday morning? And that's what I want, as I said, to spend the rest of our time on. And in Colossians chapter 3, verses 22-24, Paul talks about this in a lot of his epistles. He gives us a window into some of this. And these are more implications, if you will. And this... There's so much of this, but we've got, a, we've, got, we've got time constraints, whatever. So the first thing is this. The, the gospel story then, right? We've got to have a new story to view our work. The gospel story changes how we see and how we do our work by ultimately seeing who we truly serve in our work. So we're going to start there. Okay. So what this means is that, first and foremost, your work is for an audience of one. Wherever you go tomorrow. And that's that's Jesus. Notice how Paul says in the Colossian text, and he says this to bond servants, which is a conversation for another day. Paul's not condoning slavery here, and this is a different type of servanthood than we would experience or read about in our nation's history. That requires unpacking. We just don't have time. But he's not condoning slavery. What he's doing is he's dignifying people through their work. But he says to this bondservant, as he's saying really to the household here, work but not by way of eye service in verse 22. And eye service is nothing more than working for someone else's approval. Or maybe uh, only when the boss is looking kind of a thing. 
Which is why he adds, fear the Lord and work heartily. Why? Because ultimately, he's not your master, I am, Jesus is saying. Right? He's not your boss, I'm your boss. He's not your judge, I'm your judge. He's not your king, I'm your king. So serve me. Now why would we want to do that? Like, what would make anybody want to start thinking about their work in this way? Because what? Jesus has gone before us already. We're following him. He has gone before us already. He has obliterated the stakes, as it were, giving us life in the age to come in the process. This is the inheritance that he hooks in here. Remember what I've done for you. Right? There's the gospel right there. It's leading us into Monday morning. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive what? The inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Now look, this doesn't mean that tomorrow morning when your boss asks you to do something that you don't want to do, you will, ha ha, I don't serve you. You go do it yourself. That's not what this is saying. Don't do that. Your pastor's not saying that. It is a new disposition. Right? It is a new story. It is a new story. Why we work heartily is because we serve the Lord first and foremost. It is an audience of one. But, but you know, what about the how? And this is really gets to maybe a question that you have. You know, how do, we, how do you work heartily, especially in a job that you hate? And that's why, why I like that text is because Paul is going right to the person who probably is doing the most things that they do not want to do. A bondservant. But how do you do that? How do you, how do you begin to work heartily at things that, that you hate? Well, you have to change how you see that work, which means it needs a bigger story to fit into. For some, work is just a paycheck. You came in here today and you're thinking, tomorrow I just got to get up and go and get that paycheck. That's a small story. That's what Paul is saying to you. For others, work is a means to an end. That is a small story. You know, I I work over here so that I can really go and do the things that I want to do. Nothing wrong in and of itself. Nothing wrong with just going to work to get a paycheck. But it's a small story. Work as serving King Jesus, that's a bigger story. And what needs to be said is your current job or wherever you find your work might not be what you do forever. But while you are there, Paul's saying, work heartily. Why? Because you don't serve man. You're a new creation. You serve a king. You serve Jesus and all that you do, the one who has gone before you and has served you till death. I'm sure there were things that Jesus didn't want to do at times. Things that were before him that he did not want to... Want to, want to follow through on. But what kept him there was what? It was a vision. was a way of seeing that drew him and his work into what? A bigger story. And that story included you and me. The story of redemption. That's how we learn to work heartily even with work that we don't like. Do you need to adjust the story in which you view your work Your work tomorrow. It's one of the things that we might see here. Ada waited tables in seminary. She loved it. She would probably go do it again if she had the chance. Uh, but she didn't love it because, you know, it was her dream job or because she got filthy rich. Uh, she loved it because it put her in contact with a bunch of people who needed to be loved. That's my words, not hers. I'm embarrassing her now. Now, no. Why did she do this, right? Where did she get that? Is it because she's this wonderful, nice person? No. 
It can't be. No, she, she got that. It came from seeing Jesus' love for her and his work for her. Yeah, Mike Duffy was her boss, and she honored and respected him as such. But when she would go in there and wait tables, he wasn't the only person she was serving that day. Right? That's a bigger story. Right? When we see our work as ultimately serving Jesus, the work changes. It changes immediately. I don't just see a party of ten who has just sat down in my section as the possibility for a big tip. As if all they are to me is money. I see them as people Jesus loves and my work towards them. Being the best waiters I can. Right, that reflects the bigger story that I find myself a part of. That's making people wonder, what story are you living out of? Tell me about it. If this is true, the gospel story tells us then that there are no pointless jobs. And Monday morning, on Monday morning, and because our work is about redeeming spaces in the world as Jesus' new creation, there can't be. Every job, every work that you do matters. And Martin Luther put it this way. He said, what else is all our work to God, whether in the fields, in the garden, in the city, in the house, in war, or in government, but just such a child's performance by which he wants to give the gifts in the fields and give the gifts in the home and everywhere else. These are, as he says, the masks of God behind which he wants to remain concealed and do all things. That, is, that requires imagination. That is a big story. Luther is saying that anywhere we, anywhere we are doing good works that please God, right, those deeds, those works, those endeavors are, not, are, are, are but masks of God behind which he wants to remain concealed and to do all things. Do you view your work that way? Wherever it may be tomorrow. And this means that your cubicle or your home, wherever this happens, it matters, friends. It matters in ways that we won't even fully know here. And it matters for nothing else than the fact that you are there as image of God. Your presence and work not only reflects God's character as image bearer in that space, but it is also being used to usher in God's kingdom, his new creation, as you redeem that space and push back against the effects of the fall. This is why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. I cannot tell you how and what ways all of your work will not be in vain. I can promise you it won't be. I can promise you it won't be. No work is ever pointless anymore because as a new creation, you are always redeeming the spaces by your work, right? But what work is it that actually pleases God, right? That's sort of the next question that maybe we've got to quickly answer as time runs out. What work pleases God? It's any good work done well. And this is Dorothy Sayers, her essay on work. I would commend to you. I wanted to read the whole thing to you. I couldn't. But this is what she says. She says, the only Christian work is good work well done. And then she goes on to say this, and this is, this is what I grew up thinking about work. She says, the church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him not to be drunk and disorderly in his leisure hours and to come to church on Sundays. I grew up thinking that was all that the church thought about my work or all that the church thought about my dad's work. Here's the real business, friends, Sunday morning. When you go out there, just try not to mess it all up. 
Dorothy goes on to say what the church should be telling him is this, that the very first demand that his religion makes upon him is that he should what? Make good tables. That's the best definition of Christian work that I can give you. We often confine work as being Christian if we somehow find a way to put a cross, all right, or or our Bible verse on the logo. Stop, please. Francis Schaeffer said a plumber who is a Christian doesn't do Christian work by writing, Jesus loves you on the pipes. He does it by making sure what the pipes work well. Pushing back against the fall in that way. When I go to see my back doctor about my back, I don't want him to hand me a track or to fill his walls with scripture and, you know, prints of Thomas Kincaid scenes. Like, there's a place for that. And I'm not saying it's all wrong. But what do I want from him? I want him to fix my back. I want him to do his work well. And in that way, usher in the new creation by pushing back against the fall. Why? Because that reflects the story in which you and I are a part of now. And when we go out there on Monday and we just sort of wing it, I service, we don't care. You're telling people that Jesus isn't coming back to redeem all things. This is why this matters. In this way, you no longer think of ways that you can do ministry in your work. But rather, you begin to see the work you have today as ministry, even if you hate it. Because you serve somebody else. You serve somebody else. And, and, And this means then that there is no sacred, secular divide in our work, which is another cultural evil that has entered into our thought process. What I do as a pastor here on Sunday morning right, in God's kingdom is just as important and glorifying to God as what you will do tomorrow on Monday. Please hear that. Our responsibilities might be different. Our salaries might be different. But we are all in the business of redeeming spaces as God's servants. This means and I got this a lot from college students. You, know, you do not have to quit your, do- your job for it to become valuable or become glorifying to God and go and then do vocational ministry and enter the mission field somewhere. Please don't do that. Stay on the front lines, as it were. Go be a doctor, but do it for the glory of God because by being the best doctor. Why? Because God loves the body. He does. Go be a business owner and show us what it looks like to pay your employees well. To care for this creation. To create jobs so that other people can care for their families. What, what reflects God in his character more than that? Go be, a, go, go be a teacher. Commit your life to being the best at figuring out how people learn because God created us to learn and grow. Give them that gift through your work. Be an athlete who commits his or her craft Commits to his or her craft in a way that displays the excellencies of the body because the body is excellent. That's how God made it. Be a musician or actor, not just because you love music and stories, but because God loves music and stories. And communicate that love of God for that thing to the world. You don't have to go into ministry for your work to have value or to be Christian. It already has value. And what makes it Christian is not attaching some Bible verses to it or getting caught reading your Bible in your office. What makes it Christian is if it's done well. 
Because that's the type of work that your creator is in the business of doing. This is your job on the front lines tomorrow. There are no pointless jobs. With that, I will conclude our time. There are no pointless jobs. There are only small stories, friends, in which we see and view those jobs. The gospel is a bigger and better story that says work has immense value. It's cursed. Right? There are problems there. But it is being redeemed. It is being redeemed. And one day the flowers we plant we will grow. And there will be no more thorns and thistles. Do you have that vision? Do you have that type of imagination? But tomorrow, Monday morning, your work, wherever you find yourself, will still be frustrating and broken. But remember, you follow the greatest act there ever was in the finished work of Jesus for you. And that's the story you and your work are a part of. And that should free us to go into Monday morning to serve our Lord, knowing that the inheritance is already won for us. Do you see it that way? What would it look like for you to adjust that lens? Come tomorrow. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that as it turns out, the things that we love, you love. And isn't that such a coincidence that you've created us to do what we love because it reflects what you love. And one of those things is work. And so we pray that you would teach us about that, that we wouldn't just see it as a means to an end or something that we just have to do in order to get on to the next stage in life. But there is real real work there. And there is real ministry there. And things that we do, the things that we do that seem to be so mundane and pointless are no longer mundane and pointless. They are bringing the new kingdom to bear here in front of us. Redeeming those spaces and pushing back against the effects of the fall until you return again and draw these things into your new kingdom. Would you give us great visions for that day to come? We pray this in your son's name. Amen.